from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in and joining me for another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a modern-day author that guides us into the past. From the mystery of the hot southern Mississippi Delta to the passion of dark romance, she takes us on a journey that begins with her writing process and ends with her plans for future works. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Brittany Johnson. Brittany, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Uh, I know you're busy promoting your new novelette and from what I gather, uh, a lot of other projects. So uh, I appreciate you making the time. Absolutely. So in your bio on social media, one of the ways you describe yourself in kind of a a tongue-in-cheek way is as a writer of a myriad of unfinished story ideas. So at some point, Mississippi Blue was one of those unfinished story ideas. What was it about Mississippi Blue that drew you to it and made you realize, I need to give birth to this? This needs to see the light of day. Well, that's a great question. It's one of those that the the seed was planted when I was in high school um, in my history through film class. And we watched a film called Mississippi Burning. And that really just cemented this idea of like, I need to write something in this time period about a similar subject matter. And then it wasn't until several years later. And so that would have been 2014. And then in 2018, Mississippi Blue in more, more or less a fuller form kind of came to me and I went, oh, okay, this, this is actually, you know, it's connected to this, um, this seed that was planted and this is actually what it's going to look like. And so it kind of just came back to me. It wasn't necessarily one of those that I went, oh, you know, I've been gnawing on this for a while. It was, it was an idea that I had not thought of for many years. And then it came back and I, you know, I just was like, here we go. It's happening. It kind of found me again, more so than me going, oh, I should really get to this. So do you have any uh, classical training or have some sort of a creative writing background? I do not. So yeah. that's it's what I find about most most authors that really put out good content is it's just kind of a, an inherent like you're born a writer. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't speak for the experience that my or my writing of what it would have been had I had more of a background, but I I do know that I have always been writing since I was young. And then just um, as I got a little bit older, and especially in high school, it definitely became um, more cemented in my mind that I was like, this is this is what I want to do. And so I hadn't ever stopped writing, but there was a certain point that I went, okay, this is real now. This is something that I I feel more than just like, oh, it's just a hobby. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I heard you talking about, I'm trying to remember, uh, a time period beginning with, did you say 2016 or 2018? As far um, as uh, so the... As far as Mississippi Blue? Yeah, um, 20, 2018. Yes, April of 2018. I, I always remember that because I like to go back and commemorate when I actually first started because it feels very, you know, like, very official. This is my real first... Uh, attempt in this way, especially on my typewriter and everything. It was such a different experience from what I'd done before. And so I guess, how long collectively did it take to write Mississippi Blue? So I always say the overall. Um, So I went from 2018 to when I published and self-published in 2020. 
So a couple years, but I wrote the first draft, everything like I didn't edit or anything. It just first draft on my typewriter in about four months and then had to go back and rewrite and add in scenes that weren't there and kind of, you know, tie everything together that I didn't initially get out. And that took the the remaining two years. (laughs) Are you structured in the sense that you write on a schedule? Like when you, when you determined, all right, I need, this book needs to get out there. I'm going to get cracking on this. Did you set up a, like a, a deadline or a certain amount of words per day or anything like that? So I went, um, especially since I was doing it uh, more old school, I decided that I wanted to write half of what I heard Stephen King used to write on his typewriter, which was apparently like six pages a day. I don't know if that's entirely true, but that's what I heard. And so I went, okay, let's go three pages a day. Let's try the let's try half and see how that goes as my minimum. And so oftentimes, many of the days, it would be more than three pages, which was awesome to hit those like kind of writing streaks throughout the day. But then I always told myself, even if I didn't feel it that day or there's, you know, work and everything else, I was tired at the end of the day, I said, at least get my three pages in. And so I would, I would always do that. And then I had, I had little sticky notes that I put on my desk and I'd go, you know, three out of 360 pages or whatever my end end goal was page count wise. And then six out of whatever, nine out, you know, or however many that I got in that day. So I kept track that way. Everything about it was very much like, it really just felt like me and the typewriter there and nothing else existed outside of that. And that was the only way that I kept track. And it was very much like, if I do this and I stay on this kind of track, I will have a novel soon enough of in some way. And again, it wasn't when I felt like I finished it in my first draft. Um, I did have a beginning, a middle and an end. And that beginning stayed the same to the finished product and the end stayed the same in the finished product. And then a whole bunch of stuff, you know, was added in the middle. Basically, that was where all the work ended up being. But yeah, it was uh, I had never written that way. I'd never experienced it that way. I'd never kind of just like dug in and kept myself really determined to meet whatever end point that I could find. You know, I was just going to kind of write until it was done. Absolutely. That's great. So you you mentioned writing as a child. Do you remember about what age you started? I feel like I was around eight years old, and I still do have the original um, journal that I wrote in. And I wrote, a, I, to me, at that age, it was a book, and each page that I wrote was a chapter, and it had 10 chapters. So it was a little just, you know, now it probably wouldn't even be regarded as a short story. It'd be like... Uh. You know what I mean? It was so it was so itsy bitsy, but I had um, I definitely had that like full plot throughout it. I once again had the like the beginning, middle and end. So I, I started around then. It was totally just for fun. I was really into it. And then in I remember this very distinctly because in seventh grade middle school, my English class, we had an assignment for a um, a murder mystery narrative, which I like instantly latched on to. And now looking back, I can definitely see like that initial influence, you know, because Mississippi Blue has this huge like detective element in it. And so I really, really was so pleasantly surprised in my class how much I enjoyed it. I got so into it. And that for me kind of like I felt myself getting the writing bug then, you know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't until then that I was like, oh, this is something that like I really enjoy instead of just being a kid and kind of you know, just doing your thing. And and it's like art. But then now this time it's like, oh, this could be like real art. This could be something I eventually do later on. You mentioned uh, like detective mystery. Did you like the kind of hard boiled noir detective stories? I I mean, I, I never read any of those, which is funny. A lot of my influences come from movies and TV from cinema. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I didn't really start reading until I was in my 20s, but I used to love watching Sherlock Holmes, the old mm. Basil Rathbone <laughs> English uh, versions. What drew you to the very specific uh, Southern Gothic genre? Great question. Um, it's I, I don't know what else to say aside from that has always deeply fascinated me. Again, I feel like I, for as much as I love to write it and how fascinated I am by it, I don't feel like I've read enough. I'm definitely catching up now um, and exploring more authors who are 
just amazing in that genre. But I also feel like it's like I didn't know of that genre until later on. You know, I just I before Mississippi Blue, I didn't really know that I was writing necessarily Southern Gothic, you know, even as I was writing it. And then I just I just knew that I wanted to write something in the Deep South because that fascinated me again through like cinema, movies, TV shows. There was definitely this like entrancing kind of mysticism, kind of like there, it feels secretive and hot and sultry. There's all of these things that I was like, you know, that's what I want to write about. That's what intrigues me. And then I want that as my backdrop for a story to take place in. So um, slightly forgetting your question and maybe getting off topic. But oh, just, yeah, <laughs> just what drew you to the Southern Gothic genre? Yeah, just yeah. just pure fascination for it. Yeah. Um, so have you seen season one of True Detective? Absolutely. Oh my God. Cause the, all the description, you know, the, the heat, the mystery, the darkness that just, uh, rust and coal was coming to mind when you were saying that. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's funny because, um, uh, quite a few people have talked to me about season one and, you know, like whether or not that influenced me, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, it definitely did. But I got to tell you. I was watching season three of True Detective nonstop while I was writing Mississippi Blue, especially in the tail end. I was just there was something about I didn't it see that really. That one. It's um, I feel like if people watch season two and disliked it, it would be hard to go into season three. But I would that's, highly recommend. That's kind of what happened to me. <laughs> yes, I would highly recommend going into season three. It's not season one by any means, but it definitely has. You know, they're in Arkansas. There's um, missing kids. The two lead detectives have such a interesting bond and relationship. So it's like it definitely harkens a little bit back to that season one. Well, I'll have to check that out then. Yeah. So Seth's mother, Mrs. Barton, is an interesting character to me because she has borderline personality disorder and is extremely religious to a fault. Mm -hmm. And from what I've read, that's a very common occurrence with people with borderline personality disorder they have such a uh, fractured sense of self and don't know who they are that they find comfort in the structure of religion and usually take it to an extreme. Did her character come from any personal or indirect experience with someone with that disorder? Um, I mean, yes, but I, I feel like there's multiple sources oftentimes for one character and you can draw these little bits into it and then create this own. So, I mean, like, so much of the characters and specifically for me in Mississippi Blue, I'm sure a lot of authors, if not all, are like that because you're, you know, you're always drawing on experiences and sometimes they come out um, without you knowing it. It's a very like unconscious thing you're writing and then all of a sudden this comes through and then you read it later and you're like, oh, holy shit, that's like, that's from this. That's, you know. <laughs> um, so, yes. Um, and I would say many of my characters have like th this book is very special to me in the sense that if I was to get personal with it, you know, I could tell you, yeah, this is related to this. This is this. This is my experience with this or uh, experience within my family. Well, you know, something like that. Um, so short answer. Yes. Right. Well, so <laughs> how much of you, if any, is in the characters of Carolina and Rita? Yeah, um, a lot. I would say um, Rita is she uh, and I've talked about this before because I've been um, from so touched by feedback from people of how much they connect with Rita and how much they mean to her. And I'm just like, that is amazing. That is amazing to feel and hear and see that connection between people. And for me, it's even more special because Rita is so much represents parts of me when I was younger especially with writing, because she gets diminished. Her spirit gets diminished. She gets shut down about something that she just even begins to explore, you know, and it, and it gets shut down right away. And it's not even someone doing that to her in the present. It's her father's voice inside her head. And so she begins to write and then she shuts herself down because of that voice in her head, because of what was put in there from such a young age. And so I... That's very true for me because there has been a lot of doubt for a long time. And to be able to express that through that character has just been so special and cathartic and everything else. You know, it's uh, 
it was a hard process, but it was like, you know, I'm writing hard and true and that's what I want to do and get to the real meat of it. And I'm like, this is emotional for me. It will likely be emotional for the readers. And from what I can tell, it is so far. And I just want to, that's what I want to deliver every time. So definitely Rita is, um, is very near and dear to my heart. And she's also a lot like me. And then Carolina and I, a lot of me comes through in Carolina in terms of her strength during these hard situations that she's in and having to confront in that moment. And that's something that I always admire in characters when I see that is to be able to go, oh my gosh, all of this stuff is happening all at once. It is about to take control over me. I can't do anything about it. And then they dig as deep as they possibly can and they're able to fight through it, you know? And that's one of my favorite things to see and to read about. So definitely Carolina and I share like that similarity because that's that comes from me. That's what's in her. Well, I really love the way you portray the character of the thing. You you don't give a complete description of the character at once. You give small glimpses of it through the perspective of different characters uh, over time. So its appearance slowly takes shape in the reader's mind. Where did you get the inspiration for the thing and its appearance? Yes. So that actually originally started, and it was one of those like seeds that were planted mm-hmm. like before, but this is a visual one. Um, so I was playing MMO, an online game um, called The Secret World. And they, in that storyline in whatever area, they have um, what's called a voracious Wendigo. And it was kind of their version of a Wendigo. And it, and it very much actually resembles the thing. It just altered some things, but it's this, it's not quite gangly. It was more of a thicker, bald, giant teeth beast that was just like hunkered down and crawling around. And so that really stuck with me when I saw it in the game. And again, like seed was planted and then I went, oh, let me kind of exaggerate that or change it just a little bit, alter it to what I need for this creature. So like, you know, the thing has a little bit longer limbs and it looks more human-like rather than monster-like at some times. So um, it definitely, that idea though with the Wendigo did start some things off and get me rolling as far as what I wanted that creature to be or resemble. So is it metaphorical in any way? The reason I ask is when it first appears in the story, it's taking the young girl immediately after her father has desegregated his church. So I wondered Mm -hmm. if it represented the collective hatred of the town from its long history of racism. Yes. So the thing definitely is the type of creature that's going to feed off of Mm -hmm. that hatred and almost be able to use it and it will make it more powerful. It's been I don't want to reveal too much because there will be a sequel coming at some point that explains more things. So I don't want to um, give too much away. But the thing definitely has been around in Orson for a long time and it's been using it and it's been feeding off of it within the blue and everything and then coming up. So definitely just timing wise, the fact that all of these events start all at once and the town's really fired up about some things. um, Yeah, it's going to make its appearance during um episodes like this uh one of the things i noticed is uh the names of your characters for some reason it seems locale and time period appropriate did you did those just happen organically or did you do some sort of research to to come up with those names they happen pretty organically some of the names uh judy hastings my grandmother's name is judy And so that was a little bit of my, because she's the one who my grandmother um, bought me my typewriter that I wrote Mississippi Blue on. So I wanted to have like a little bit of a, you know, um, a reference to her, even in a subtle way. But yeah, I mean, these are all names that I like. Like I love, I love the name Seth. I've always loved the name Seth. I think I've always thought it would be great to have a character with that name. Barton came from, there's a song by the band called The Civil Wars called Barton Hollow. So just like uh, so many of these things were already kind of in my head subconsciously and then they just came out when writing. And I don't know what to say. I love I love me some old school names in anything. I do. I really, really do. Just trying to think of other ones. I mean, they just kind of came out and they felt like they matched the characters. Um, Dewey, Dewey Lane was, you know, that name seemed like such 
the perfect name for that kind of character. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It just, it, you know, they came out and then I was like, well, they kind of fit. So. Can you talk about the process of writing from different perspectives? Because, I mean, you run the gamut from male to female, different ethnicities, different ages. Mm-hmm. Um, can I talk about like what that was like, yeah, like or the, how, did, how I went about that? Yeah. Like, how do you put yourself in the perspective of like, how old was Rita? She was um, she was about 17. Yeah. And, and uh, Samuel, I guess the, the same age. Yep. So you're, um, you're writing, you're writing from it, like with Samuel, you're writing from a different, uh, uh, you're writing from a male perspective, uh, different age and different ethnicity. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> like, um, that's, uh, that's quite a feat. And in, in my opinion, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I feel like a lot of that, I, I don't know exactly how to explain it because it just kind of started coming out. Um, and I felt like I knew, once I started writing about these characters, I felt like I knew them so well and so intimately. You know, like e- each one of them, I even though I didn't flesh them out on paper, they were fleshed out in my mind. And each one of them has their own distinct voice, I feel like. And it was so just it was so strong in my head that I almost couldn't not write it. Like I wasn't thinking about how do I write them or how it was just coming out. And so I kind of just went with it and you know, the process of when I was writing was not, I wasn't super planned out with it. I didn't outline and nothing like that. I just went, okay, I'm going to write this scene today. And then I would skip around. I'm going to write this scene about this person. Oftentimes I just have like a single line running through my head that I, I start with. And then I put that down on paper and then I just keep going after that. And oftentimes it's in their voices. So, you know, many of like the opening chapters that start off with different characters and everything are just most of the time, those are the first lines that were in my head or those opening lines in those chapters. So, you know, just reading a lot of the books I read in high school definitely gave me some background of how to write possibly these different characters with different voices and their own backgrounds and everything. So, I mean, like reading always is is probably the number one thing that will help you mm-hmm. figure that out, I feel like, yeah, getting experience sense. from other authors and how they present. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I'm I'm kind of a real uh, technical, detail-oriented person. So my natural inclination when I talk to authors is to ask them, like, what is your technical process? How do you, you know, but honestly, sure. when it comes to art, you know, art speaks to the subconscious and it comes from the subconscious. There are, there are people like uh, Brett Easton Ellis w- who sound like they're very technical, like he outlines to high holy hell from <laughs> from the interviews I've seen with him. As far as you, you mentioned, you know, having the the mile markers of the beginning, middle and end. Are there any mile posts in between there? Do you outline at all in any way? I I mean, I, I didn't with Blue and I have not continued to do that with my, you know, my other stories. I used to try to do that when I was younger, when kind of you're in school and they teach you like, oh, this is how you kind of figure out a story to write or a narrative or whatever. And so I'd always attempt to do that. But then I'm like, this just doesn't work for me. I kind of have it sitting all up here and I'm halfway existing in that world at all times during my, I I remember I used to be at work and I would go, oh, I got an idea right now and I can't go write it down. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, you know, I was, I was, pl- I was like, I can't help it. Like I was slowly planning out like, okay, this is what I'm going to write about tonight when I get home and sit down on my typewriter. This is the scene that I'm going to tackle. And not being able to get to that right at that moment, you feel like, oh no, I'm going to lose everything. It's just going to, so, I mean, I'm sure that there are plenty of pros to outlining, but I feel like that for me, at least in my own personal experience, that takes away from the um, almost the like how genuine that moment is when you're actually writing. Because I love just like being in it and letting it just come from me without knowing where it's going or what's happening. But just like writing that scene from as deep of a place as I possibly can. So a lot of that happened with Mississippi Blue, where it was just like, I have an idea for this scene. Okay, let's sit down. Let's write it. Let's get it all out. And then later... Let's see what we can do with it. We can change it later. So this one, I feel like I know the answer to already, because surely the answer is yes, but maybe not. 
Do you live or have you lived in the South? Because your description of the oppressive summer heat and humidity is spot on. Um, no. Are you serious? Yep. Okay, you are officially the most talented writer I've ever met then because <laughs> I, I live in the deep South. And mm-hmm. when I read your descriptions in this book of, I forget who it was, somebody was wearing a summer dress and the, the sweat was just pouring down their cleavage and yes. Seth was wiping the sweat from his brow and talking about blackheads on their face. And it's just like, oh, God. And it was authentic to me. So it surprises me. You you are evidently a very talented writer indeed, if you can describe those scenes that way. Well, thank you so much. So I was born and raised in Oregon. And I lived there um, my entire life up until recently. And um, I'm in Oklahoma now and I have family from here, which I visited. So I know technically like, yes, in the South, but I'm more like Midwest, you know, like closer to the Midwest than I am closer to the South. You know what I mean? So I feel like, I mean, here we have the humidity. And so I, and I've always loved that. I mean, a lot of people probably don't like being all sweaty all the time, Mm -hmm. but I love, I love that heat. Um, but it's not. I don't know. Um, if you come over to where I live, you may change exactly, your mind. Exactly. That's why I'm like, yeah, if I if I get a little bit further, um, which I do at some point. I mean, like, I absolutely want to make my way through, um, you know, Mississippi and Louisiana, um, Georgia. I mean, like, that would be amazing to kind of do a whole little road trip loop. But um, yeah, so when I was writing Mississippi Blue, I was writing from uh, Portland, Oregon. So. Awesome. Wow. <laughs> I am impressed. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. I am super glad to hear that it felt accurate. Yeah. And true. Yes, so very that makes authentic. me very, very happy. Good. So you also have what I can only describe as a visceral descriptive power when painting a picture of a setting. Actually, if you're not opposed to it, I can give mm-hmm. you an example by reading a passage. Oh, sure. Listeners, I have permission from the author. No copyright infringement. <laughs> this is Carolina we're talking about here. She arrived in what resembled a dark womb, void of moisture and warmth or any sensation noticeable to man. Unreality smothered her, her brain commanding her body to twist and contort, a body which she could not truly feel. She saw her arms move slowly, as if through clay. Carolina could not see through the dark purple cloud around her. She had no idea that just ten feet below her was ground and the well from which she came. She continued to swim with beating limbs in her bubble of nothing. It strangely occurred to her through all of her fighting and animalistic thoughts that this must have been how astronauts felt if they lost themselves out in space. Something about astronauts and her memory of reading about them in the paper broke the limbo and sucked her lingering, wispy self right back into her limbs. The sacks spit her out like a bursting blister evacuating her body like a newborn exiting its mother's canal. She landed on her side next to the well. Mic drop. <laughs> that is that is <laughs> such a viscerally descriptive setting. You know, we've talked about you, you just kind of get these, these rushes of inspiration. But mm-hmm. uh, once you get the inspiration, how do these, I, I can't describe them any other way, these visceral feelings and descriptions like what's it like being in the throes of that trying to use very obviously it's southern gothic literature so you're not using fairies and flowers to describe settings but i mean you really get into the thick of it absolutely um and thank you so much um yeah i i kind of i've noticed more when i'm writing i feed off of that when i find those words and i latch onto them that really just like kind of grab you with these claws and I feel that while I'm writing I mean like I'm I'm one of those people that when they're writing I'm like almost acting it out I'm like I feel like I'm feeling it and so once I latch on to like one of those words because I mean just in what you read it is like a string of kind of descriptions like that and I feel like it almost doesn't let me go until I finish it out but I'm always searching for like okay what's the next piece that's going to fit with that what's the next word that's going to keep this going to just like really churn you while you're reading and so for me just having that experience if I know I'm having that experience while writing it I feel like it will hopefully come across the way that I want it to and I just you know I know again I go back to when I am watching certain shows and there's some scenes that are just making me like 
feel that way, I go, okay, I need to be able to write that. I'm always challenging myself of like, when I see something visually and it's coming across and making me feel a certain way, I go, okay, how can I write that? How can I describe that exactly? And so a lot of my writing comes from trying to describe something that I saw, like something that's just, like you said, so visceral and present and real. And yeah, so like if I'm cringing, hopefully you guys are cringing too. That's kind of how I go about (laughs) it. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. So tell me about this, uh, this 70 year old gentleman named Roland. (laughs) Oh, yes. My number one. The most important man in your life. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, So, yeah, he was a gift from my grandmother when I hadn't used him for a while. I can't remember my exact timeline, but, you know, she gave him to me because she knew I was super into writing. She was always has always been very supportive. Um, So it was a birthday gift and I thought it was the coolest thing. And then I was completely afraid to touch it. I was so afraid to like mess it up or write the wrong thing. Like I'd kind of gotten my head about it for a little bit. So I didn't touch him for a really long time. It was in pretty cherry condition. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really well kept. Um, Like it came to me completely maintained and ready to go. Like she brought it, she took it to a shop and made sure it was all good to go. She bought me my, you know, ribbon for it. Um, They had already um, basically installed it in there. I have since learned how to do that myself, which is good. Um, but yeah, so he sat around for a little while, not doing anything, being pretty unloved and underappreciated. Then when I wrote my like first official page of Mississippi Blue on him, it just just started after that. Like I couldn't I couldn't stop. And there was something so magical, like truly magical for me about writing on the typewriter. The sound of the keys, the plunk, plunk, plunks, kind of like Rita talks about, you know, that's very um that was very special for me. And it made my writing flow in a way that I've never had before. Something came out of me. I feel like because I was writing a story set in 1969 and I have this old badass typewriter, like something came together there that I just, I didn't even expect. I didn't know that that would happen. Um, So yeah, Roland is like, he's just, I mean, that's that's really the only way that I write now. Certainly the only way that I will write novels now. Yeah, I bet it was like Roland was like this conduit to a different time period. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You briefly described how different it is from digital versus ink and paper. And it seems like a lot of authors prefer that, like Cormac McCarthy used an old Olivetti typewriter. Chuck Palahniuk, actually, I think he just uses pen and paper. Which is quite a feat as well. I can't imagine doing an entire novel on pen and paper. My hand would get very tired. (laughs) Definitely. So what is your, your writing atmosphere? I imagine you have a designated place and are not taking Roland to the local Starbucks. <laughs> I'm not. Um, Although you should yeah, and you should video it. <laughs> you know, noise level would just, because uh, he, he is loud. That's what I'm he saying. Go in there, go in there surrounded by uh, college students with their AirPods in, quietly typing on a laptop and just start hammering away. <laughs> I'll just look like the most self-important person in the world right there. Yeah. yeah. Um <laughs> No, um my yeah, so I have I have like my I mean it's my desk, but I call it my writing desk because that's always where I do my writing. I have taken Roland outside a little bit um during the summer cuz I wrote Mississippi Blue during spring and summertime, so sometimes I would take him out there and kind of just experience that, but then I was really worried that it would hurt it somehow. <laughs> just I did not want to damage it at all, so I took him back inside. Um, yeah, so I have, I have just my, I'm sit down with him at my, at my desk and I have my stack of paper, you know, my blank paper on one side and then my written papers on the other. And I just, you know, I just kind of go through that process. It's pretty, pretty simple in that way. As far as I don't need a whole lot to do what I do. It feels like with Roland, um, it's kind of just like me and him against the world, (laughs) you know, um, we just get in and, and get to work. Um, yeah. And then. I I listened to a lot of music when I was writing Mississippi Blue. Like I, I have an actual released playlist that people can listen to if they want to that I feel like is a soundtrack to the book. Um, but almost all of the songs on that are songs that I listened to during many of the scenes when I was writing. And oftentimes, like I remember when I was writing all the Mark Hastings scenes, I had um, God's Gonna Cut You Down by Johnny Cash playing on repeat over and over and over again whenever I would write his scenes because that just like... 
I'm like, that's his song. That's his like, that's his mission. Um, so, you know, I, I I would have my music on and have my typewriter and then I'd try and kind of just get into it. That's all, all that I seem to need. Yeah. Um, it, it's probably a lot harder to get distracted with, with Roland cause he doesn't have an internet browser. So <laughs> Which is why I also need to set my phone away from me. Oh, yeah. I'm forgetting because, about the phone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, at, at the same time, especially writing something that is historical fiction in, in a certain way, um, I did feel the need to like check myself. But I try to just when I write, I try to just write without checking those things, even though internally I'm like, but is this actually accurate for the time? Like was, um, I can't, I can't think of something, but you know, I had to go through and check and make sure that I didn't have anything that actually wouldn't be in 1969. But I did that later. Um, cause when you're writing, you're like, you don't want to get bogged down by those kinds of things. You don't want to interrupt your flow by like questioning if something is accurate in that way or not. You can just edit it later. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of editing, um, one of the questions I like to ask authors is if they have any strange writing or editing tricks, like, one guy uh, said that he uses his computer's dictation software to mm. read. He'll do a few pages and then he'll have the dictation software read it back to him. And being able to hear that, he can tell if it's clunky or sentence structure is bad, stuff like that. When you obviously you wrote with Roland, but then you, you wrote it again on a laptop, right? Yes. Yeah. I basically rewrote everything, which, you know, to answer your question, that probably would be the one thing that I have editing wise that I feel is different because that's when I did my editing and my revisions and my rewrites. That's what I was, was going to ask as mm -hmm. you're writing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that really helped me see it in a different way because I'm putting it in there and I go, okay, no, that doesn't work right here. You know, I want to cut that out and then replace it with this or um, so that just all kind of happened at once, um, which was for me, that process works really well. I've had People tell me that I'm totally crazy for doing that, which is fine because I get it because like, you know, it'd be it'd be a ton of work and it was. But for me, it worked and it helped me polish it in a way that I don't know if I would have um, like printing it out and then like, you know, going through with red ink and, and fixing it all like that and then retyping it. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know what if this was like just for this, this worked that way or if I don't know. But it it all seemed to come together pretty well, I hope. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember I remember reading, I think, back in the day when everything was done on mechanical typewriter and you sent off a stack of paper as a manuscript to a publisher. I think you weren't allowed to have more than 10 errors a page. Was that it? Or, I think so. Or excuse me, yeah. 10 corrections. Like if you. Yes. Yeah. After that, you got to redo the page. <laughs> that would be intense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am thankful for, um, you know, not having to do that because, goodness, I know that I had some errors. It's not like I was an amazing typist on my typewriter either because I had to get used to it, you know. So there's definitely it's full of little little errors and things. So thank goodness I was able to um, fix that on the computer. So how, how much um, like I don't even know what you call. The uh, is it ribbon, I guess, that you put in Roland? The um, how much of those disposable supplies do you have to go through to make it through an entire novel? Um, I actually only used one, which has like the two sets with it, so it's like two sets of ribbon. And once one runs out, it alternates to the other one. Um, so I only used one for Mississippi Blue, but again, that wasn't it's not the same length that I had for the final finished product, so. I'm not sure if I would have had to use more, but actually, I mean, like it lasts for a while, especially if you're not pressing super hard <laughs> on the keys and uh -huh. you're going a little bit lighter and you have the right settings on your typewriter, you can actually make it last um, quite a while, which is nice too. So I've only gone through, I think like two sets overall for everything I've written on Roland. So it's not too bad. So tell me about Maneater. Ooh, yes. The new novelette <laughs> out without further ado. <laughs> Yes, so um, Maneater is it's a it's a little bit of a deviation from um, from Mississippi Blue. It's not set in the South, so it doesn't have that kind of um, voice or vibe to it. But it definitely still. I feel like if if people read Blue and Maneater, they'd go, "Oh, this is the same author." So I think I think my writing voice carries through. Um, it's also 
set in the late 1950s. So it has, you know, that's those are the eras that I like to write in. Um, and it is um, definitely a dark romance novel, I would say. Um, I think it just got described in a recent review as um, Supernatural Erotica. And I was like, nice. oh, okay, I will <laughs> I will accept. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that was that was an older project that I didn't think that I was going to bring it back to life. But then I did through some awesome, awesome beta readers. It really helped me get it to the place that it's at now. And I, I'm very happy that it's my second release. I wrote I wrote the entire thing on Roland as well. This is quite shorter, but, um, you know, um, it's basically about a, a young girl. She's 27. She is a virgin. She hasn't had a lot of experience with um, socially, but also dating and intimately. And um, there's definitely a reason for that. I don't want to give too much away because it's a short, you know, it's a shorter story but there is a supernatural and quite dangerous reason that she hasn't gotten involved with people and so she meets this person that seems like this is going to be this is going to be it and then their journey takes some definite twists and turns after that so yeah but it was um it was a lot of fun to write out a little bit outside of my wheelhouse but a lot of fun too well what was it that struck you like your inspiration from going to I guess, kind of a, the traditional Southern Gothic, hard-boiled detective novel to the dark romance? Um, I I just really, I, I think it was the, the characters. I really, really like my two lead characters, Betty and Richard. Um, and I definitely have, uh, this is almost like a, um, like a prelude, um, like an origin story to some of their adventures later on that would get quite a bit darker and fit more into potentially that um that southern gothic realm. So this is definitely a little bit of a, you know, it's a quick setup to that and some plans that I have for later on. So it was a good deviation because it also like challenged me just to mix it up outside of my my normal thing, which I think is good to do. But at this at the same time, it's like I have some plans for you guys later on and for my worlds to intersect a little bit. So I'm excited yeah, for that. Yeah. So I, I guess readers can take comfort in from from what I hear that not only with Mississippi Blue, but with Maneater, there's a continuation for both. Uh, absolutely. Yes. I cannot give any details of when, but yes, you will be getting more of both in uh, in some way. So what was it like to go from writing the romance of Seth and Carolina, which was more of an ancillary part of the story to Mississippi Blue, to writing what I imagine is a more intense, sexually charged primary part of a story? It was an interesting flip because to make that the the main part of the story is, I feel like, a challenge without it coming across as, like, fan fiction, maybe. Like, doing it well, you know what I mean? So it, it doesn't feel like, oh, it's just about sex or it's just about this. And that's, like, you know, because I wanted there to be an actual story with it, but then have um, this very charged, like, electrifying, like, um, thing happening between them, between the two lead characters. That's very real, like, their, um, connection and everything with, like, Betty and Richard. And then that, but that's the same with Carolina and Seth, because I felt very strongly about their romance, even though it was such a, um, you know, on the list of priorities, it was quite a bit lower than the other events happening in it, but I wanted it to feel just as real. So, I mean, that's, that's the same between Carolina and Seth as it is between Betty and Richard is that I wanted to make their connection as real as possible. And whether or not it's um, how that's portrayed, I mean, portrayed in two different ways in each each book, but um, just really like having it feel authentic was my main goal. So you uh, you already kind of spoke about it before with regard to music, and I've noticed a lot of, well, a few of the authors that I've come across, uh, I think definitely Monica Vogel, pretty sure Braden Riddick, and some others, they all have soundtracks for their novels. So do the particular songs inspire you to write the particular scenes, or do the scenes kind of just bring the songs to your mind? Did the chicken come before the egg? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the songs inspired me to write the scenes. If I didn't already have them, or they added to, I was already in the scene, and I and I 
was listening to it. And then, like I said, if, if a certain song struck me and I wanted to just stay in it, I would just put on repeat and just over and over. And it almost, it even if it's a, a lyrical and non, not just instrumental song, um, it just kind of goes in the background and is just there, like looping. And it kind of just keeps me with this momentum and in the moment of it. Um, but yeah, definitely there, there's, I'm, I'm that type of writer who will listen to something or have something on and I'm like, oh, I need to write this scene now. This like evokes this kind of emotion and now I need to put it on the page. So definitely for Mississippi Blue, that was so many of those songs. I mean, there's even songs that like I, because I was listening to them, there's, um, Can't Help Falling in Love by Elvis Presley, which is like Seth and Carolina's song, essentially. I was listening to that song for them and then I put it into the book like having that play on the jukebox and they were leaving um, because I had been listening to it, you know? So it, it certain things find their way in there. And then just like having that soundtrack made it feel so much more real to me, I guess, while I was writing. I was like, oh, I can hear these songs being played as if this was a movie right now. You know, so it added that little bit of depth to it as well. So uh, what do you think about the future of novels? Uh, do you think that large publishing houses will remain in business? Or do you think that as self-publishing becomes more affordable, that people will eventually get sick of not being able to have full creative control over their content and everything will just kind of go independent? That's an interesting question um, and a hard question to answer because I I really don't know. I'm very new to kind of this indie publishing world. You know, I know I released my book like two years ago, but I didn't fully start getting involved until um, really when I republished Mississippi Blue and Paperback, which absolutely changed the game for it um, back in October. So I feel like, I mean, I feel like publishing houses are probably going to stick around for a while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're pretty cemented Have you... into, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, have you ever queried anything to a, a major publisher? Um, I did my um, so I I never talk about it, but I did have a novel before Mississippi Blue that I finished, <laughs> but it was uh, I did it in high school and I, I it's just so different from my writing level now and where I feel like like sometimes I can go through and I see like hints of like, oh, that's like, yeah, that little little line is me later writing. But um, so I did actually query that and I got uh, to like an indie publisher um, that was local to where I was living at the time. And they wanted the full manuscript after reading the first 10 pages. And then they decided not to after they got there. So I was like, <laughs> I was like so close. And then like, oh, no, but it's totally fine because everything worked out. And honestly, when I got that rejection, I was like, I'm part of the club now. Like I did it. I'm like, you know, it made me feel more official, which is um, me being the optimist that I am trying to like find the silver lining and everything. But um yeah, so that was my only experience with that. So I've never queried to a um, like a big publishing house or a bigger agency or anything like that. Um, so I don't have direct experience with that. And it sounds um, like you're waiting a lot of the time once you do that. You're waiting for a response. And that's part of why I went self-publishing was because I was like, I feel done with Mississippi Blue. I feel good about it. I don't want to I don't want to wait for that. I like I felt like I couldn't almost so. Yeah, and if you go through uh, the writer's market, I guess they still have those. I took a writer's workshop a long time ago, probably 20 years ago. But when you look through the different publishers, a lot of them will say, do not uh, accept multiple submissions. So if you submit to them, that's the only place you submit, which mm -hmm. is, kinda, you know, just it's just one of those constraints that really kind of would make me think that an author would just rather, you know, go independent unless they were looking for that payday of the advance, because I know the advances yes. are usually monstrous and usually the, the book doesn't sell near as much as the actual advances. Right. Yes, that is um, definitely one of those bigger trade-offs and probably a huge appeal to trying to go the, the traditionally published route. I mean, like I always when I was younger and started really thinking that this is what I wanted to do, I was like, well, I used to have that thought of I won't be considered or couldn't consider myself a real published author unless it was traditionally published, which I've completely like 180 on that and feel so differently, especially now being in the com indie community and like finding um, self-published or small indie press published books that I'm like, they're so good. They're so much better than a lot of the traditional stuff that I read and not 
not to say, I mean, there's great books out there everywhere, but I'm like, some of the, like, some of these lesser known books, they're just so, so good. And I'm like, I would have never known had I not gotten into this and involved in this. You know, I feel like it's so rich um, with so many great writers that don't have that um, that same kind of spotlight just because they weren't traditionally published. So whenever I get books, I mean, I, I've pretty much I'm pretty much a slave to Amazon. <laughs> so, um, but uh, you know, every once in a while, I'll go to a brick and mortar, Barnes and Noble, or something like that. But are there indie bookstores or bookstores that sell uh, indie books? Because I think I've seen pictures that you've posted where it looks like you've you know, kind of like a, an author on a book tour doing, talking about your book, signing books and so on. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure, and don't quote me on this, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure that there are indie bookstores and I just don't know where they are. Um, I haven't found any locally, but I do know, like, um, I have one that's near my town. They have all, like all the mainstream books there, but they're, they're like, just a smaller bookshop. So I think they're considered indie bookstore, but it's not like they just exclusively sell indie books in their store, if that makes sense. Um, but I was lucky enough to do um, have three different book signings in the towns nearest to me. And then at one of those, they bought three of my books. So they were up on the shelf. So that that was what you were referring to. So that was pretty um pretty wild. I didn't I was just like this is this is amazing right now because <laughs> I've been picturing that for uh -huh. so long and now it's up there and I'm like oh my gosh, oh you my know God. it's right next to a Stephen King book. That's uh -huh. crazy. Like <laughs> yeah. So That's awesome. So, uh I saw somewhere that you write poetry as well? I do. It, yes. Is that is that just like a something you do in the background or are we do we expect poetry in the near future? Um I have a I have a very um supportive and close friend of mine who has been telling me I need to put together a um a horror poetry collection and put it out there cuz they <laughs> um I've gotten some good responses with that but it's mostly just at this point for me it's just been a side expression. Um I I used to uh I'll be totally honest I used to hate writing poetry. It was so uncomfortable and difficult for me until I realized that you don't have to have a lot of rules with it. And then once um, I've, I felt very liberated like uh, by that. And so then I just wrote whatever I want with poetry. And that actually was a way for me to um, expand and improve my um, my prose was through poetry, because I feel like it helped, it freed me up to do what I wanted to be like a little experimental and like sentence structures and stuff like that within my book and within my prose. So, um, yeah, poetry is just, it's a lot of fun and I really enjoy it. And I don't know if I will ever officially do something with it, but it definitely carries big influence for me within writing itself. Yeah. I was always a fan. <laughs> I don't know if I should say this out loud, but I was always a fan of Bukowski. <laughs> Something, something about a dirty old man writing poetry just seems mm -hmm. awesome to me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, what about uh, short stories? Um, yeah, I'm just not very good at them. <laughs> Admittedly, I, I figured it'd be I really... the other way around. You're like, you're not very good at you're good at short stories, but not very good at novels. But it's it's the shorter stuff you have a problem with. Yeah, I do. I, I love to drag it out. I love to be super descriptive. I love to get into it. Um, you know, Mississippi, I had to cut several scenes of Mississippi Blue, so it could have been longer. But um, yeah, the the I've, I've definitely written several short stories and I'm, I'm going to be releasing some more um, this fall, like just, uh, you know, like on a Kindle or digital format. But um, I feel too constrained by that. I need like plenty of room to breathe. And I don't like the idea of this happens, this happens, and then it's over. I need all of the juicy bits in between. And that's, that's my favorite part to write, um, is just to not, you know, like sometimes, sometimes, and I love Stephen King. I am a huge fan, but like, sometimes I'm like, Oh my gosh, what are we even, what am I reading right now? Because this description <laughs> is going on so long. Like, I don't know what we're talking about anymore. And there's a, there's a certain part of me that like loves that, but I was like, okay, I want to do that, but just like pull it in just a little bit. I, d I don't care that he's wearing corduroy pants. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> well, cause um, Maneater is a novelette. So that was like a good in between 
those two things. So, and I also heard about screenplays. Uh, yes. I mean, nothing is, uh, I've, I've written a couple, but they're, they haven't gone anywhere. I have a lot of stuff like that that has been written, but it just has been sitting in my desk drawer or on my computer. So, yeah. But um, I really, that is something that in the future I would love to continue with. Like if I um, ever got the opportunity to adapt or co-adapt or whatever Mississippi Blue into a, um, like a feature or a TV script, I would love that. So... I I imagine that um, writing a novel, short story, poetry, different, but kind of in the same ballpark. I've seen a diagram of what a screenplay looks like. How different is that? That that just seems kind of strange the way you have to segment. It's almost like an outline. It's like a novel in an outline. <laughs> yes, it's. Um, and again, I don't I don't have a ton of experience. I'm by no means an expert at all. Um, but it it does, you kind of have to switch your brain into a different gear for it. Um, just with how it's written and how it's paced, not, not only just like the formatting of it itself, you know, and how the dialogue is and everything. Um, but it's, you got to switch gears into this, like almost this action mode instead of like, for me, when I'm writing, um, prose, I have a much more kind of laid back approach that kind of warms into action and then really picks up and then lays back. And like my experience so far with writing the screenplays and the biggest challenge for me has just been, um, it's been just getting into it and writing it as if it's happening in the moment rather than like, I'm going to be able to take my time and stretch all of this out. And also conveying something in such a short amount of words, you know, he glanced at her, blah, blah, blah. Like, and the dialogue, and you know, instead of being like, he glanced at her and then she felt the ripple of, you know, I don't know. It's just like, it's such a different experience, but it's really fun too. I have fun challenging myself to to do different things and, and write in different ways because I feel like it all feeds together and it helps improve the areas that I might be weaker in and other, in other parts of my writing. That's why I said earlier with poetry, it's like, oh yeah, that helped me figure out how to write better prose because I could be a little bit more free with it. With writing screenplays, I'm able to break out of kind of a certain monotony that I get into of like, this is how things are described and this is the order of it. And instead I can be like, boom, action, here we go. And I need less words and it will still convey a lot. So it's a, it's an interesting process, but I think it's it's a lot of fun too. Yeah, it seems like with a screenplay, your words are kind of the framework that the visual experience of the movie kind of fills in, like instead of describing every little thing or every uh, thought process, you've got to realize, okay, they're going to be zoomed in on the face of the actor or actress, and that's going to be conveying how they feel. Their appearance is going to be right there for you to see. So you don't have to (laughs) describe what they're wearing. And yes, yes. And they can, you know, you don't have to do that kind of work because that's their job the actor or actress or, you know, director even of, of assisting with that. And so um, you're able to just, if you write it well, they're able to take it and run with it is my understanding, which would be just uh, when I, when I was writing Mississippi Blue, I saw it so, so, so vividly. And I imagined it as a movie or a TV show. And I've always been jealous of <laughs> Being able to, like in cinema, being able to set up a scene and get an entire vibe by just, you know, one, you know, like an an intro scene, like instead, for example, in Mississippi Blue, if they just like entered on a swamp with, um, you know, all of the sounds, the cicadas, the um, maybe some dialogue coming through of narrative, like it's it it's describing so much already where on my end, the work to describe that if I wanted to be like in real, real detail is so much more. So I've always been like a little bit like, man, that'd be super cool. But I also love what I do. I love getting really deep with the descriptions as well. But it would just be awesome to just be like, bam, there it is. Description. You know, you feel it. The atmosphere is there. So you had mentioned that the reference to the movie Rear Window was personal to you because it was your mom, correct? Yes. Yes. Your mom kind of introduced you to it, I guess, to Hitchcock in general. Yeah. um, Let's see. I... 
Rear Window, and then um, and then Psycho, and um, a little bit of The Birds I've seen, but I haven't I haven't seen all of his work. But uh, yeah, Rear Window really stuck with me, and I wanted to put that in because it it's one of those movies that was so suspenseful, and I absolutely love the suspense, and that's what I was trying to convey in a lot of the book was to feel that. So when Rita's like kind of going through and going, oh, we need a character that feels like this, and he's kind of trapped here but knows what's going on. And um, so it was almost symbolic of like what I was trying to do in Mississippi Blue in some scenes of like what happened in Rear Window. So yeah, that was definitely a big influence. And I liked having that as a little shout out in there too, because my mom has been like my number one supporter this entire time. And, you know, she was also the one who was like, let me watch um, the... Stephen King's It, mm, you know, the God. 1990 version. And How so old that, were you? like, that, I was like six. Oh my God. <laughs> See, I wouldn't have, that would have been the end of me if I had seen that when I was six. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I probably shouldn't admit that. And I'm like, I'm sorry, mom. But it really began my like obsession with horror. I truly feel like. So, yeah, because I was so scared, but I was like, I couldn't not watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, we were at some sort of a museum and I guess I was probably around six, something like that. And we watched, uh, they had a screening of the birds in 3D. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yes. It was was intense. (laughs) Like, make them go away. It's horrible. There's some images in your mind that just, like, they're never going to go away. It's just cemented in there. Oh, God. So what is the life of uh, Brittany like outside of writing? Mm. Um, It's not very exciting. (laughs) Because that's, that's, uh, I've been really, really focused on this. And really trying to, you know, like actually give it a shot. Um, and I had huge changes um, and huge life changes uh, after the pandemic happened, as I'm sure so so many people have gone through. I'm not going to get into specifics or anything, but um, life kind of took a huge 180. And I've really felt like I writing has been something that's been getting me through that and trying to kind of. I'm in the middle of figuring out my life right now and how it works with alongside with doing what I dream, which is what I'm doing right now. And it has been amazing. And um, so, yeah, it's not it's not a lot outside of me working and writing. Um, I love to game. Um, I love MMOs. Um, I love Lord of the Rings. I've been super into that lately. Um, just getting lost in other worlds. Reading, obviously. You got to keep reading to um, keep your writing, you know, up to. Um, I used to work out a ton. I don't yeah, really that, anymore. I used, to, I used to be a kickboxer and martial artist. Uh-huh. I don't do that as much anymore. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I saw something <laughs> that I thought was the Tough mutter, but I think it's actually called the Spartan Sprint that you had posted yeah, up. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I've done a couple of those. I would love to do them again someday. So, um, yeah, I definitely still have a very active heart within me, but I have not done as much of that as I used to. That used to be, like, my whole life was, you know, from a young age. Um so, like I said, truly like a 180 into into this other realm. But I was writing during all of that. It just is now kind of the main focus. Well, uh, as we kind of bring the show to a close, one thing I, I wanted to ask, there's one thing that you would like readers to take away from Mississippi Blue. What would that be? One thing that I'd like them to take away is, for me, it would be the heart of it. Um, because I feel like there are a lot of very tender, meaningful moments throughout it. Um, I, I mean, they're going to, every, every reader is different and everyone's going to have their own experience with it, which I think is incredible. But for me, like, there's a lot of um, talk about trauma and grief and sorrow and all of these, like, very deep, difficult things to deal with. But if they can take from that, like, that it's going to be okay. Like these characters confront these things and they get through it in whatever way they can. Like that would be the one thing, you know, Um, even though all this horrible stuff is happening, but I still, I don't want to spoil in case anyone hasn't read it, who's listening, but I feel that the, the ending wraps up some things and and gets you to a point that it's like, okay. (laughs) You know, after, after all of this hardship. Okay. Well, in closing, is there uh, anything you'd like to plug? I mean, you've got enough to keep people busy. You got Mississippi Blue. You just released Maneater. Um, anything you want to plug or 
social media? Um, yeah. Um, so my work is at this point exclusively on Amazon. So you can find both um, Mississippi Blue and Maneater on Amazon, um, Kindle and uh, paperback versions of both. And then just as a little teaser, you will be seeing a Maneater audiobook oh, narrated by me nice. coming out very soon. Nice. So. Yeah, Mississippi Blue audiobook will take a little bit longer, mm. but a Maneater one is definitely coming out um, in the near future. So that will be exciting. And I, I'm going to be continuing to release some short stories through Amazon, as I mentioned earlier. So you definitely have some more to look for. Um, and second novel is underway 100%. So that I, I don't have a, you know a date that I can reveal for that, but I I am very excited to introduce you guys into that because that is definitely in a similar vein as Mississippi Blue. So that will be a lot of fun. Well, we all look forward to it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed it and I wish you continued success with your writing in all areas of your life. Thank you so, so much. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. All links are in the description. And if you want to support the work of Brittany and the indie writing community, make sure to leave a review on Amazon. This is not only a positive reflection for the author, but the more reviews the author gets, the more visible they become in the search results when customers type in keywords. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Yeah.